How many of you have ever heard the semi-famous fable about the six blind men and the elephant? You know what I'm talking about? It goes something like this. There's six blind men, and they're all asked to touch an elephant. And, and one fella touches his belly, and he thinks that the elephant is nothing more than a wall. And another one of the blind men touches the elephant's big ear, and he thinks he's touching a fan, but he doesn't realize that it's a full elephant. A third blind man touches the tail, and he thinks that the elephant is nothing more than a rope. So on it goes with the other three, and each grabbing a part of the elephant without any one of them knowing the full extent of what an elephant is. Maybe you've heard that story before. You, you might have heard it with the moral being that we're all like blind men when it comes to God, that, that we can know little parts of God one religious expression gets this right and another one gets this right, but we can't really know the fullness of God. And how could we be so arrogant as to speak with any authority whatsoever about an elephant that we simply can't comprehend? If you've been a Christian for very long, that, that probably puts you in a little bit of a tension. That that probably unsettles you. You're like, wait a second, I've been going to church for a long time. Maybe, maybe it's just on Christmas and just on Easter. Regardless, I've put a lot of time in trying to know this God, and this fable tells me I can't, really. That should put you in a little bit of a tension. I want you to hold on to that tension for a little bit tonight, and as you're hanging on to it, I want you to turn with me to John chapter 1, where we will explore the incarnation of Jesus Christ. John chapter 1, let's do a little bit of review over the last couple of weeks as we've been studying it. Verses 1 through 5 tell us that the Word is Jesus, the Word is eternal, the Word is with God, the Word was in fact God, so He was both with God and He was God. And then verses 3 through 5 say that the Word created everything, and that includes each and every one of us and everything else that we could possibly imagine. Well, verses 6 through 8 then go on to teach us that the Word entered time and space, which means he was a historical figure, proclaimed as a forerunner by John the Baptist, but he came to this world. Verses 9 through 11 tell us something that is really sad. It, it tells us that the Word who was God, who was with God, who created everything, and then who entered into the very world that he created, he was rejected by his creation, at least in large part. He was totally rejected. That's the story that the Apostle John is laying out for us in John chapter 1. Now, I want just to assume something real quick this evening, and, and I I realize it's a bit of an assumption because we have a lot of people from a lot of different faith backgrounds here tonight, but let's all assume, just for the sake of expediency, that God is omniscient. Omniscient. That's, that's just a big, fancy theological word for God knows everything. He knows everything about the past. He knows everything about the present. He knows everything about the future. He knows everything. Let's assume, just for the sake of argument, that he knows everything. Here's the question I have for you tonight. Why would a father send his son? Let's, in this case, say his name is Jesus. Why would a father send his son if he knows that his son is going to be rejected? 
Why, why on earth would a loving father do that to his only begotten son? If he's omniscient, he knew that Jesus was going to be rejected. It doesn't seem very loving then to send him anyway. Look, at first glance, this seems to me akin to me sending my son into a biker bar wearing a canary yellow sweater vest. It, it, like, you're just like, what? Why would you do that to your son? We've heard the story so much that perhaps we've stopped examining the story. We just assume it, but without asking any questions. Why would a loving father send his son into what he knows will be rejection? John chapter 1, verses 11 through 13. He came to his own, to the Jews, and his own people, the Jews, did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, meaning because they're Jews, not from the will of the flesh, nor from the will of man, but they were born instead of God. So there's your first answer to the question, why would a loving God send his son into what the father knows will be rejection? Ultimately, belief in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection enables people to become sons and daughters, children of the most high God. And that was simply worth the incarnation. He knew that it would be painful. He knew that it was going to be hard, but we were worth it. Last week, we talked about the incarnation being a dangerous rescue mission, that, that Jesus is a rescue hero. It was dangerous. God knew what the cost would be, and he thought the cost was worth it. And that, that is a demonstration of God's infinite love, that he would send the infinite sacrifice to die that we could go from sinners to sons and daughters of the Most High God. That's, that's why we celebrate Christmas. That, that's the gospel, that Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly. He died upon a cross, not for his own transgressions, but for our transgressions, that by grace through faith in him, our sins would not be counted against us and we could receive the unconditional love of a perfect heavenly father. It's the gospel. That's, that's why it was worth such an extravagant cost. Now I'd like to read you verses 14 through 18 and this is really where we'll pick it up today. John goes on to write, and the word <clears throat> became flesh and he dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side he has made him known. This is all pretty easy. 
Verses 14 through 18 say basically the same thing as verses 11 through 13, but they reiterate it in a much more personal and relational way. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelled among us. Dwelled among us literally means pitched a tent. He moved into the neighborhood is what a lot of scholars have said it should be translated as. That Jesus moved into our neighborhood. Last week we had a a video of a mission group in Sudan. And we have actually three people from Grace Bible Church who are currently over in Sudan working for this mission group. It's It's called Every Village. And I was struck as the guy who was talking on this video was saying that these three people from Grace Bible Church, people who look a lot like we look, are now preparing to go and live in mud huts for years, years. And I thought to myself last week, wow, what an incredible sacrifice to give up houses in the heights or in you know, Tanglewood or, you know, wherever they came from in Houston. Nice houses. Let's, let's say they have air conditioning and heating. Way nicer than the mud hut in Sudan. And I thought to myself, what an incredible sacrifice that these people are making. What an incredible willingness to engage in what I would call downward mobility, Downward mobility. We're so into upward mobility, aren't we? That's the American way. Let's get nicer stuff. Let's always work to improve. These guys forsook all of that. Said, no, no, we're more interested in downward mobility. The question we have to ask is why? Why would anyone want to leave the heights in Houston, Texas and move into a mud hut in Sudan? There's only one answer. It's love. It's love. These three people and a host of other missionaries all over the world like them so love God, so love his gospel, so love the people who don't yet know the gospel that they're willing to go to mud huts to try to bridge the gap. That's the only reason. It's the only reason. So God loved us so much that he sent Jesus from heaven all the way to earth. That is a far greater downward mobility, far greater. Heaven with glories that we cannot conceive of is nicer than the heights. Relative to heaven, earth, and I don't care where you are on earth, is the worst of slums, even compared to Sudan. Why? It's the same answer. Love. Jesus was willing to do it because he loved the Father. He loved the story that he and his Father had crafted. It's a story of profound redemption and unconditional love. And he loved the sinners who he knew would reject him. And he said, I'm willing to go anyway. There's another reason 
for this extravagant cost being worth it. Verses 16 and 17. For from Jesus' fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He wanted to give us grace upon grace. I love that expression. I thought about that expression several days this week, and it just fires me up. It kind of reminds me of Pat Green's Wave Upon Wave. I, I went and looked the lyrics of that song up this week. His devotion is toward a girl. Other than that, there are some similarities. Grace upon grace, wave upon wave. Contextually, the law is an expression of God's grace. The law showed us God's perfection. It showed us his will, showed us a lot of great things. He didn't have to give it. It was grace that he did give it to us through Moses. But it, Jesus comes along, and like one wave is replaced by another, Jesus is grace upon grace. He fulfills the law perfectly on our behalf. He dies to take the consequence of our sin. We see God's ultimate expression of love through Christ. Look at verse 14 again. And the word became flesh, and he dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus moved into the neighborhood. He tabernacled among us so that we could see his glory, right? That's what verse 14 says. The reason he came is so that we could see God's glory. And then that leads us to verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus is both the only God and the one who makes his Father known. That's actually a pretty important word. The word known is exegeomai. Exegeomai. It's translated known. It's a great translation, but there's more to it. Ek means out or out from. Hegeomai means to tell or to lead forward. So Jesus came to make his father known, literally to bring or lead out, to declare thoroughly or particularly. In fact, if you've been around churches long, you've probably heard the word exegesis. My job is to exegete a text, to explain it to you thoroughly, to introduce you thoroughly to the concepts in a text. This is the same root word, exegeomai. It's a critical explanation or interpretation. Jesus came that we could understand thoroughly the glory of God. Verse 18 says, nobody's ever seen God until now. Jesus, by his coming, is basically introducing the world who, who was a mysterious elephant until this point. And he's saying, I want to introduce a bunch of blind people to a really awesome God. Exegeomai. I want to make him known. I don't want you to know just a little part of him. I want you to know all of him. See, the fable is flawed. The fable of the elephant and the blind man is flawed because it never considers this paradigm 
earth-shattering question. What if the elephant talks? What if the elephant is willing to disclose himself to the blind man? What if he tells the blind man, that wall that you felt isn't a wall, it's the side of my ribs. That fan that you felt isn't really a fan at all, although it is used sometimes to fan me, but in fact, it's my ear. And that rope, you should move away from the rope. It's my tail. I'd get away from there. If the elephant were to say all this, would the six blind men be considered humble for ignoring his word? Humility isn't saying we don't know God. Humility is saying we couldn't know God unless God had came and revealed himself by his word. And that is what he has done. He has made God the Father mysterious, known. For he is an exact representation of the glories of God because he is in fact God. And he came. He came to know you and he came to be known by you and he came to die upon a cross to release you of your transgressions. Unconditional love. What a great reason to celebrate Christmas. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Thank you, Lord, that you did not stay hidden, that you came and you conquered sin, the sin that separated us from you, in the person of your son Jesus, born in a manger in Bethlehem so many years ago. God, thank you that you are relational. Thank you, God, that you are intentional. Thank you, God, that you made a way for us blind men to know the fullness of your glory, for you have spoken by your word. God, I pray that this Christmas and every day that we are given, that we would celebrate the fact that you came near, that you pitched a tent, that you moved into our neighborhood so that we could know you and be known by you. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.